0: Welcome to the Wokademia podcast from the uh, Salem Center at the University of Texas Austin. Um, obviously, the University of Texas Austin doesn't like this, but you know we do it anyway. Um, and I'm very happy to have uh, Wilfred Riley here to talk about some of his uh, work related to you know uh, what's acceptable in society and a- academia. Uh, Professor uh, Riley was, a, I believe, had a successful career as a businessman and then pivoted to academics and as a political science professor at Kentucky State University. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, of course, yeah. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, I guess the, the two books that you've, the, your, your two recent books that I think are related to our discussion are um, the, the book Taboo and the book Hate Crime Hoax. So if you could just give us a little intro to what, uh, um, whichever one you'd like to start with would be
1: great. Uh, yeah, sure. So no, thanks for having me on obviously. And so my background, I have a political science PhD from Southern Illinois University and a law degree from the University of Illinois College of Law. And you're right, I was I was in business for a while, but pretty standard academic credentials. And I actually still obviously do academic political science. I'll be at the upcoming Midwest Political Science event. Looking at how uh, different governmental structures and responses, such as lockdown, affected COVID nineteen spread in different countries. Oh, yeah, it's an it's an interesting paper. A pretty standard quant paper, but. I also, one of the things that I became interested in, really, as a graduate student, I started, I started doing some side papers on things like why prosecutors win in local jurisdictions. Is it skill or is the system just set up to really make, or are there plea bargains bluntly in 99% of cases? And I, be, I became interested in these sort of, to what extent are the things that are widely perceived in middle and upper middle class contemporary society based in reality. These sort of sacred cow questions became very early on something that I wanted to focus at least a percentage of my energy on. And that's what both of the books reflect. So Hate Crime Hoax um, grew out of an experience that I actually had in Chicago. I was a member of the graduate student community in that city. I'd gone back to Chicago to deal with a family health issue. And there were all of these high-profile hate stories that anyone in the city at that time would remember. Um, the bar Velvet Ultra Lounge, for example, was burned nearly to the ground. This was a club that was popular with, you know, bisexual female students, and thus with everybody else. Is the sort of hat joking but real line, but um, very gay-friendly, large. Sexual flexi audiences dancing there. It was set on fire and someone wrote these awful anti-gay slurs throughout the bar. And this was universally viewed as an anti-LGBT hate crime for obvious reasons. Um, you know, and th- this this kept happening. There was an incident at the University of Chicago where a campus activist named Derek Cockaleen claimed that his Facebook page had been taken over by an entire conservative hacker group that he called the U Chicago Electronic Army. And that these people were threatening him with, for example, anal rape. So this this was a front page story in the Tribune, I believe it made the journal, this this is another one that everyone heard about. Uh, Down the road at Michigan Tech, there was an incident where a white engineering student allegedly threatened to shoot uh, every Black student on campus. This just kept happening. Wisconsin Parkside in the northern Chicago suburbs, there were nooses, excuse me, found throughout the campus, there were at least two of them, And there were lists of death threats targeting all the Black, well not all, many of the Black students on campus that were pinned to trees, if I recall correctly. Again, a pretty major story. There's at least one that I'm forgetting, by the way, that was in Chicago itself as part of this sequence. But the short version is that all of these collapsed, they turned out not to be true. Um, The velvet rope story was almost Shakespearean in what happened. I mean, it turned out that the owner had owed a lot of money to different people. And he had essentially set the bar, very Chicago story, but he had essentially yeah. set the bar on fire to collect insurance money. I mean, if a bar so, burns down in Chicago, you've you you <laughs> insurance fraud associated with the mob should be like pretty high on your list, right? You, you don't want to stereotype, but you got to ask some questions. You know, but like, yes, it, this, that actually is, I don't, I don't know if the mob per se, Italian American organized crime was involved, but that, that turned out to be pretty much the story. But this was only revealed when this guy's boy, was caught in another state, like driving drunk with a woman. Um, you can still read, I forget all the details, but you can still read about them in the insurance press. It was a pretty well-known case. And he apparently snitched on his friend and explained what had happened with Velvet Rope, that the bar had been, you know, set alight, so on down the line. So this guy, the club owner was arrested and was given, I think, a year in jail. He's actually out and opened, last I looked, another venture called Bonsai Bar that was doing pretty well. Um, so anyway, a really lengthy, funny story there, but the, there was not wild, as with Josie Smollett, there was not wild anti-gay hate on kind of the north side of Chicago or the immediate surrounding suburbs like Oak Park. But the same thing happened with all of the cases. I mean, the Cacaline case, he turned out to have just done this to himself. I mean, it's a lot of people don't understand how easy it is to trace the IP of a computer, thus Tor and so on. But I mean, there's a website, what'smyip.com. The federales, who are many levels above that, were obviously just able to identify exactly, you know, he there'd been one machine in this side of the room, let's say, he logged into it and targeted social media on another. Or he logged into his Facebook page and posted the content himself, something like that. So he, I don't think he did any time, but was you know, shamed. He was shown to be the person responsible. The Michigan Tech thing was another kind of crazy collapse. All these stories are almost entertaining, but that guy, there'd been a fight between black and white students on campus or something like this. So that guy had originally sent out a tweet saying, I'm going to shoot every black person. I see a big smile tomorrow. This isn't how we do things at M Tech. This is an engineering school. Calm it down, boys. And a campus rival had screenshotted it and cut out the words, a big smile, and then gone to campus security and said, you know, this crazy man is going to shoot every Black student on campus tomorrow. So, like, the the SWAT team kicked in his door. He faced terrorism charges. And he was sort of desperately saying, well, look, no, here's, here's the post. This is what I actually said. So charges were dropped pretty quickly, but the school kept, pr- academic discipline is insane. The school kept pursuing disciplinary uh, proceedings, charges against him, even after he'd been totally cleared in criminal court. This, this went on for about a year, almost ruined the guy's career. Uh, he did get through it, as I understand. I'm, I'm actually not going to name this guy, but um, just, just on and on. I mean, the Parkside thing turned out to be fake. The reason that the Parkside case was determined to be a fake, by the way, Is that the only name spelled correctly on the list of African American students, many of whom had ethnic names, was the hoaxer? So the police (laughs) going through this, they see this list of 10 or 15, 20 names and this terrible threat. And so they start contacting each person and they notice that only one of them had their name and information up there correctly. So they began to ask, how'd that happen? Did you, were you involved in this? And she broke pretty quickly under questioning and the, the case was closed. But after that happened, I, I began to ask how many of these stories that we see in the popular press, I mean, and obviously these, these were a few years later, but Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, Erica Thomas, Nikki Jolly, Duke Lacrosse, how many of these turn out to be real? So the book Hate Crime Hoax involves me actually looking at highly covered stories of racial conflict and hate crime, or hate incident in some cases, and seeing how many of them collapsed down road. And for the high profile cases, it was was a very large number of them. I mean, every case I just mentioned turned out to be fake, as did a number of other very high profile situations. Most of the University of Missouri, you know, the Yasmin Suede hijab tearing, the KKK spotted on the Oberlin campus. I mean things that produced policy solutions. Um, Taboo kind of takes that principle of what's really going on and extends it to sort of what at the time were nine or 10 of the most widely debated issues in the country. So chapter one, and again, this book writing would have started in about 2017. Uh, So some of this may seem a bit dated now, but at, at that point, I think only Heather McDonald had really unpacked some of these claims. I mean, chapter one is wh- how accurate are the numbers used by the Black Lives Matter movement? So again, in 17, 18, 19, even early 20, I mean, it was very common for people like Cherno Biko to claim that hundreds or thousands of unarmed, uh, the brothers is the term that comes to my mind, but African-American men were being essentially murdered by the police every year. Uh, Biko gave that estimate on primetime Fox News. I mean, this, this is widely believed. And again, that sort of American upper middle class, polite life world. And the surveys we
0: give our students are kind of like, oh wow, you guys have absolutely no idea what's going on on this stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, you've okay, you've done that too. How many, how many um, unarmed black men, how many do they believe are killed on uh, a legal the basis?
0: It, there's a handful in the hundreds and then a concentration in the thousands. Um, and like nobody has the right number, like you know, one oh, or yeah. two people have the right number.
1: Yeah, they you know,
0: what I've what I've it, uh, improved this year, I think. Possibly because the selection for the class where we run that
1: survey changed, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's- it also might just be that the tide is broken. I mean, what you see with a lot of these stories, as with COVID, is that eventually information from the IDW or you know even the evil dissident right or the true radical class edge of the left will creep into the mainstream media. It'll feed through you know the Matt glaciuses and so on first, and then you'll you'll start seeing it on CNN. And the next step will be mainstream thought leaders pretending they invented it. While a bunch of people on Reddit are sitting around saying, no, no, I mean, we're debating this left versus the right three years ago. But it's, it's the same thing with cloth masks don't work. I mean, Liana Wynn said that two weeks ago. I mean, everyone I know in the general quad community has known that for several years. I mean, there's been, there's been research on this from countries like Vietnam that goes back 20, 30 years. What should you have on your industrial workers? So I mean, but actually this one theme of a lot of my work in that public intellectual space might be, I'm not occasionally heterodox. I think that the majority of things that the typical upper middle-class citizen believes are wrong. This would be true across how to personally and sexually please your partner. If you look at why evangelical couples are happy, although it's certainly not the focus of this discussion between two dudes today. But I mean, that would be true across medicine, you know, lose some weight, buddy. That would be true across spiritual and personal belief without getting you know, in a mockery of the great religions and the agnostic alternative. I mean, but it would, it would certainly be true in terms of the fears that you experience on a day-to-day basis, what you think the average risk of, say, a plane crash is, a child kidnapping is. So I don't think that there is occasional false information coming out from the mass media sources in this country. I think we do a better job in academia, but when you look at just mainstream public intellectual stuff, I think most of the furores and panics and so on are completely baseless. But at any rate in Taboo, I've, I've done similar things in terms of the number of people that the average young, smart young person thinks are killed by the cops. But uh, did you see the piece from Skeptic Skeptic Research Center where they actually did like a large in on this and they surveyed thousands of people? Yeah, I think I saw that one. It's, it's, it was pretty disturbing, right? Really. Yeah, the average, very liberal, uh, not the average, only l- less than 40% of them. But I mean, people thought that the, the, the mean number killed in a year is like about 10,000, was one of the options. You, you would have noticed that if it was <laughs> true. Like,
0: that's what it's like. I mean, I understand people have false beliefs because they're being fed. Like, this is the sort of like the, the numbers that people believe.
1: You,
0: you would notice this sort of thing that, that would have been a like, people seem to be able to maintain these beliefs in the face of the t- complete absence of any
1: evidence, it's it's fairly remarkable. It is. I mean, uh, the fact that most people are innumerate goes into it. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, like how many cities are there in the country in terms of organized political places that have a p- non-volunteer police department of more than five guys? I wouldn't be surprised. The answer is 10,000. <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> so in, in, every, in every one of those, is there, is there a corpse? Is there a popular young black man that was just shot? There are only about 20,000 murders in a year. And I mean, we we are overrepresented among the victims, but what are Blacks, 9,000, 11,000? I mean, so to say that there are more unarmed Black people killed by cops in a year than there are Black people, or in some cases, people killed in a year, I mean, that's the level of the false information that we're dealing with. But at any rate, I mean, I looked at the BLM numbers. Again, Heather McDonald had looked at this first. I don't think many other people had. But... You know, and the Washington Post at that point was starting. They a couple years back, actually, they had put up the counted good database. But I mean, so the actual numbers, without crediting you know every social scientist in the game, turned out to be 17 Mm -hmm. on average. That's what I got. I mean, in the most recent year on record, uh, which would I think 2020's first full year. uh, No, 2021's up now. That was is literally 17 actually, Mm and the Washington Post. so that, that's the first chapter. I look at the claims of BLM. And remember, Ben Crump had been prepping for a couple of years and had gotten out a book called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People, where he argues that there's an ongoing anti-Black genocide in America. And this guy, again, I mean, he has the equivalent of a graduate degree. He's one of the country's top 10 or so attorneys. He's quite a smart guy. If you've seen him in court, like all jokes aside. But he he's literally, this nonsense came out and people were talking about these figures, 5,000, 10,000. So that, that's chapter one. And again, it's important to recognize that disconnect. It's not that people on the, that quantitative center right are trying to downplay the reality of only 5,000 people being killed or something like that. There's some debate about the numbers. The the reality is that many people believe that the number here is 10,000 and it's 17 or 12, I believe the year before that. Like the narrative is totally baseless. It's not rooted in reality. The 12 figures an estimate, but it's it's that way across every year. I mean, I start with an analysis of the year 2015, and it was, it was very similar. I mean, there were 1,000 people total uh, shot by sworn officers that year. First, only 250 of them were Black. I mean, there are plenty of white and Hispanic criminals, which is something that I don't really see why you wouldn't emphasize as a Black person. But at any rate, um, you know, less than 100 unarmed men of all races were shot, and I believe that year, 25 of them were Black. Uh, under 12 were black people shot by white officers. Again, I I don't have this data in front of me, but it's just remarkable the difference between the the perception and the reality. But like chapter two of Taboo, and I won't go through every chapter of the book, people feel free to buy it. But I mean, like chapter two looks at this idea, and this is driven by left and right-wing media, honestly, but that there's a near race war going on in the country that there's, and that this is, but that there's constant ethnic conflict in the streets. I mean, barbecue Becky, Pool Patrol Paula, Coupon Carl. And then in the reverse, I mean, the Fox News, for example, presenting the illegal immigrant killer of Kate Steinle, a tragic case, at least that last one. But I mean, as you probably know, when you pull up the actual figures on interracial crime, I mean, in a a typical year, there are about 20 million index crimes. If you go to the BJS report, there are 20 million crimes serious enough to be noted, shot along by departments of the FBI. The majority of these offenses, at least in terms of offense description, would be violent, but you also have to work in burglary, carjacking. I don't suppose that's a fully nonviolent crime, but whatever, we're not getting into psychology here. Home invasion, that sort of thing. And of those 20 million index offenses, about 600,000 are specifically violent offenses that involve a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim. Uh, that's that's three percent of index crime. Like if you're if you actually wanted the, the simplest sentence here, interracial violent crime is three percent of index crime. Person most likely to kill you is your wife or your husband. <laughs> but you know, if if you really want to talk about this, the right, if anything, has a better argument here. Not that the you know opposing blacks is a rightist thing or something, but if, if you want to look at what direction this should be focused on, uh, interracial crime in the year that I used in my data set was about 80% black on white, more than that, actually. So if you want to reduce interrace crime, you'd probably be starting in blue cities with heavily minority populations. Like the problem isn't, we saw this when uh, another piece I wrote was unpacking stop Asian hate. But if if your claim is that this sort of violence in the streets is driven by white supremacy or something like that, you're just playing political games. I mean, there's no evidence of that of any kind.
0: We literally an official
1: official letter from the University of Texas, Austin, Diversity,
0: Equity and Inclusion, all their representatives from each university wrote a thing about how horrible white supremacy was in murdering all these Asian people in these cities. And it's just with absolutely no shame or absolutely no interest in looking at actual data. And they, that that was a, a kind of a stretch to but at least. But you know, this is like, so like universities will give their official stamp of approval to these types of ideas, which I wonder if that feeds into the fact that, you know, all these upper middle-class people believe
1: this nonsense is it our fault. I think so. I, I think it's the institutional release of bad information. Um, and th- this is true across a whole line of portals. I mean, I teach a cybersecurity class. And for one of the classes, we were looking at this idea of morality in cyberspace. So the, the concept was, technically speaking, you can search or pursue almost anything on the Internet. But you can't say download it. You can't take in child pornography or you know terror plot outlines from the darknet ISIS website or something like that. But one of the problems with discussing this in the class was that there was so much false information out there. Um, all these local lawyers on their websites were actually saying things like, "If you do X, Y, and Z on a computer, search X term, that's a crime, and you should contact me for my retainer of X amount of money." And it was just, you had to get through like 12 of these to get down to the ACLU saying, no, no, this is a moral question. If, if you are involved in that cyber sex space, you can do this, but should you? You can't download things. It, anyway, the point here isn't, and don't go to tear websites, kiddos listening, but the point here was- I concur. That, yeah. <laughs> Good advice. Two academics agree on it. But no, the, the point here was simply that the the real information had been buried under this deluge of panicked false information. And this is common in, as I'm assuming false information. I, mean, I tend to believe the actual free speech attorneys on this. But I mean, this is common across a whole range of fields where, for example, Scientific American has recently run pieces denying that biological sex and race in any population variation sense of that term exist. And I would say that the first of those ideas is nonsensical, and the second is at least contested. So again, if you are not an expert consumer of information, how do you determine the validity of piece X as versus piece Y? Why wouldn't you believe Scientific American? They have a nice looking graphic with a guy with breasts and a penis. You know, so that is is a significant problem, I think. Um, we spend i've been stuck on this for a long time we
0: spend a lot of money on higher education and some of that is like real stuff like engineering all that but there's a there's a fair amount of money even like governments spend a fair amount of money creating universities and if if what we're creating is just this ability of people to believe utter nonsense like why do we even exist if you know, it seems like the first thing we should be doing as universities is like, oh, the entire
1: population believes things that are nonsense. Shouldn't it be our job to fix that? It just that's actually a great line that barring objection I'll probably use on Twitter and so on today. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that, yeah, the idea that's an actually that's a fascinating idea. I mean, the ideal starting point for a useful academic or even journalistic enterprise would be saying, The majority of people, whether that's due to childhood religious training or that's due to exposure to kind of non-news medias, how I think of, say, the Brit tabloids or whatever else, the majority of people believe a lot of things that are utterly nonsensical. I mean, to take one on the right, the world is ruled by a cabal of devil-worshipping pedophiles. Um, the goal. Now, that actually is more likely to be true than some other things people believe. But
0: Fake but accurate comes to mind on some yeah, of this stuff.
1: Yeah, the yeah, human male leaders tend to be pretty vampiric, and there's a pretty big literature on that. But anyway, like yeah, you know, you, know, you know, let the kids in on all that immediately. But when people come in with the with these beliefs, and the the full on belief I just described, obviously is nonsensical. Um, it should be the job of information purveyors to change the false belief to a true one by providing accurate information. Um, I don't know if I believe that, in fact, I don't believe that most fields in a modern university, sociology, even, but certainly any of the studies, so on down the line, do that, play that role. And that, and that, uh, even the studies, I mean, have some quants in them and are talking about real issues of race. I mean, then you get into many of the humanities, which are just straight POMO. Um, I remember I was a smart guy in college, unsurprisingly, I guess I'm academic now, but I mean, I took a range of classes and... I still remember just the level of utter nonsense that was involved in a lot of them whether you're talking about auditing an education course or you're talking about just taking a classic kate you know book by book course in literature the sort of debates about whether moby dick represents the republic of ireland and so on you start thinking that many of these people are reasonably intelligent but are simply employed in the production of bullshit and that's that's probably pretty accurate but With a final comment here with the university, I think another issue is kind of mission conflict. So, I mean, I teach at a solid, comprehensive state university, K-State, and our professors are quite good. I mean, like looking down my academic hallway, I mean, we have uh, Dr. Amadife, who's a guy from Nigeria, who's our Africanist. I mean, we have a senator, Reginald Thomas, who is our criminal justice and practical politics professor, uh, Kentucky senator. I mean, we've got a uh, Fred Williams, who's a former state police, um, more than captain, whatever the brass rank above that is, who teaches some of the CJ. I mean, the the faculty in most institutions like this are pretty solid. I mean, the academic rat race is very competitive. Like, even winding up in a top you know X hundred state university is not a bad result. There's something like five thousand colleges in the country, so these are these are often some of the leading geniuses in society. The problem to such an extent that that term has any validity. Five hundred decent institutions, one hundred fifty people at these—that's a small cadre. Anyway, um, the issue I think with academia often is the limitations placed on the faculty by bureaucracy. I think the large majority of faculty members, you know, for selfish reasons, but also thinking logically, would agree with that statement. But when you mentioned that this, the letter that you're describing from U Texas didn't come out of even the sociology department, it came out of the DEI office. I mean, it would surprise most people to know that at the typical university, there are more non faculty executive staff than there are faculty members. So I don't want to get into a long ramble about this, but I assume you have the same stuff we do. I mean, Greek life. Uh, I don't know how much DEI we have at an all black college, but it just goes on down the line. There are 25 people in admissions do a great job but is that yeah we're
0: we're we're heading towards just three in the business school full time job for DEI, so you know
1: really in the business school alone yeah that's the target it looks like um yeah we're all in have in the business school Pardon? Oh, how many how many faculty do you have in the business school
0: oh i don't know hundreds and hundreds i mean it's oh. a pretty big business school but um yeah. We're, we're, you know, we're definitely heading in that direction where, you know, if, if, if current trends continue, everyone's going to be a DEI official and no one's going to be teaching anything as far as I can tell.
1: Um, yeah, well, I mean, we, we looked at a typical college in a typical university in Kentucky at one point, and they had 110 faculty members, I believe and 600 non-faculty staff and I wouldn't be surprised if that's typical in many places. I assume that includes groundskeepers and so on, but it also includes all the offices and departments. Now, I mean, again, and if you really want to get serious about this, athletics at the University of Texas would probably employ more people than any individual department in the school. So at any rate- yeah, we, we I, have three football coaches being paid at the same time for losing football games because we just keep these contracts rolling. But- uh. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, well Texas, Texas is pretty good out on the field. I hook them, but it, it, mm, the, you've been paying attention recently. Not this year. Hey, yeah, <laughs> bad know. year. No bowl. But anyway. <laughs> really? That that's remarkable. Okay, but now isn't Texas moving to the SEC? Mm-hmm.
0: But now we get to pay players, so that helps. That's gonna help <laughs> a
1: lot, I think. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so the SEC, their their goal, I think, I know that they asked uh, Michigan and Ohio State from the Big Ten to come in, just in total rejection of geographic logic. But I mean- the, <laughs> well, We've they,
0: already re- rejected numerical coherency in the conferences. We might as well forget about lo- uh, geography too.
1: <laughs> but uh, I mean, just interesting stuff. And I mean, I, I really, actually, I'm, I'm kind of done with that point. I, I think that there are, there are certainly many idiots among those that are well-educated. But I really don't think the issue in most universities uh, primarily rests with the faculty. There are a lot of great people on the staff side, but there, there really is the question of once you get the, some of these sinecure jobs in place, how long are they going to be there? I mean, there was um, Nicholas Christakis recently posted on Twitter, sort of a comprehensive meta-analysis. They looked at 492 studies looking at the effects of DEI. And obviously, he wasn't the lead author, but it's a fascinating thread. He comments on it. And the basic conclusion was that spending money on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or on related things like implicit associations testing has no effect on any measure of race relations, except for two where it had a slight negative effect. So it's literally if this spend is say 5% of a typical fortune 500 business or large university, it's just wasted money like there there's no effect it does almost nothing so I, I thought that was just extremely funny as a lifelong critic of bureaucrats like what do they do nothing it turns out but i mean you
0: know if you can get in the if your job is is to solve a problem that doesn't exist
1: yes that's you know, it. it's like life,
0: like hey, well of course we you know it's it's not getting better it's not there so it doesn't get better so it seems like wow. a pretty
1: good good gig right <laughs> Well, the problem is that you're there are almost two levels of parasitism, though. One would be kind of harmless, friendly parasitism, like where you take the guy who's in this role out for drinks or some golf every couple of weeks and they're just there. And if there is a racism case, they do a good job. That really it's not very useful, but it's, it's not a problem. The problem with many of many people in these roles Are are you familiar with the old like classic breakdown and just straight business of the different types of leaders like smart, active and so on? I've I've heard references to it. Yeah, it's not brilliant stuff, but like the worst kind of leader is dumb and active. So if you get someone in a leadership role, what you want in a DEI setting, I would say, is someone who's smart and inactive. Like they genuinely oppose racism when they see it and twice a year, quarterback and the running back getting a fight or something. They handle that. And then they go back to their office and they drink a scotch. I mean, that that's what you want in that position. Nice, charming guy that you can trot out if the school gets sued. The worst thing to have in that position would be a dumb, active leader, because they would feel morally compelled to find forms of prejudice. One of the things that's interesting, especially to me as a Black guy, is the redefinition of what prejudice means. So I was in some interminable meeting that I won't name because then people would be able to identify it pretty recently. And I said something about, you know, well, like there's, there's not a lot of racism here and you know, speaking as a black man, I'll say this. And someone said, well, black males are hardly the most oppressed group of people. You might be in the second power position in this country. And then they went on to discuss transphobia and so on down the line. And I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a tempting logical extension. Like if you find there's almost no racism on campus and that, that really is the sector in which the DEI pros were originally, pros were originally hired. I mean, is, is there any homophobia? Is, is, there, is there some sex going on on Greek Row that might involve alcohol? Like there's gonna be a desire to expand your purview and to take down new forms of bigotry. The, the trans thing I think is currently at the margin of this the idea that it's discriminatory to keep, say, males who identify as females out of any student activity. So right now I think that's kind of the frontier of DEI. Many colleges may not be racist, but they're transphobic. But this, this could extend really endlessly. A phenomenon that's related to this actually is white people rushing away from being identified with the master class. So I don't I don't know if you've been on Tinder or any similar dating platform. I'm way too old for that. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I mean, I'm in, a, I'm in a relationship myself, but I mean, when I look at what my buddies are doing or prior to my current commitment, I mean, the, one of the things I noticed was that there weren't any white women on the platform. And what I mean by that, obviously, 70% of users are Caucasian. But what I mean by that is that almost everyone would identify as something like, you know, I am a bisexual, Jewish American person of size, if they had any bio other than come over and have sex with me. But it was, it was very much this sort of definition of, I am not just a well-adjusted, upper-middle-class white chick from Cleveland. And I, you see that very definitely, even if you're on Twitter, where people in their profile bios will say all the same sort of stuff. My pronouns are he, him, gender, non-binary. But also now you're starting to see people describe themselves as neuroatypical. So sort of claiming what you know, someone once described this as kind of crazy as a minority, but saying that I am you know, a crude way, a glib way of putting it, but saying, you know, I am, I may not be black, but I have ADD. So all this is going to continue for some period of time as long it as we like add value to victim status. People figured out a way to, you know,
0: well, you know, now everyone wants to be oppressed. So we come up with these categories that you get to opt into instead of being born into. And that, that does seem like it has this ability to create a cascade failure where at the end of the day, yeah everybody's going to end up like fighting to be in the highest oppression category and you know somehow we've we you know we've created status for oppression which kind of seems to move against a lot of what society you know a lot of things that bind society together oh well Um,
1: yeah, no, I, I think that's correct. But I mean, just even in terms of that, the, the Twitter or Tinder bios we're describing, I mean, the, the effect that you're mentioning obviously is real. Like if there if there is a negative association with being a preppy white girl, people are going to start looking for other potential categories. I mean, so like I'm a 116th Native American, you know, secondary race. One 2040s
0: uh, yeah. Native American well, at this <laughs>
1: Well, the funniest thing about that particular uh, Native sister is that she apparently was involved in, like, the the Indian movement. Like, there's a book called Pow Wow Chow, which, first of all, is just incredibly, I mean, I might have picked a different title. But Elizabeth Warren contributed a recipe to that, and it was something like wild prairie crab cakes. It was just the most non-Native-sounding thing imaginable, but with uh, a cute Pocahontas-like title in front of it. At any rate, but yeah, I mean, w- what you see is the person who normally would have been you know, stable, white chick saying, you know, instead, I'm a 116th Native American, bisexual, non-binary person of size who may be on the spectrum. And one of the issues with this is that it complicates resolving the remaining actual problems in society. There's not a great deal of racism, but I mean, there there still are realities due in part to social class. People also could study more across a range of groups, but due in part to the social class past racism, say Latinos score behind whites on the annual aptitude boards, the SAT and so on. So you could attempt to close that gap and get more Latinos into STEM. But to do that, you have to be able to focus on Latinos or racial minorities as a class. Like there's obviously no performance difference between one 16th Native American bisexual party girls who are on the spectrum and the rest of the people who are basically just white. So as you get distracted by these new made up victim categories, it becomes harder to come up with any kind of comprehensive strategy to get the kids to study more or whatever. So we'll, we'll see what happens down the road, I guess. Uh, okay.
0: Um, yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of information. But, um but sorry, I'm just processing everything. I'm trying to remember, Um but yeah, so I did want to hit, you, you you are defending a little bit the faculty versus the um, administrators, but you're, you're, you, you do, I mean, certainly at UT, there are, there are rules about what you can and cannot oh, find. Like, you know, if your regression coefficient goes one way, you get investigated if the regression coefficient goes the other way. You get a, um, you know, a big press release. So do you uh, do you see that as a problem?
1: The sort of filtering sure. on, of course. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, when I when I talk about the faculty, I, I think in general that if you remove the large administrative state from most universities, you would see a freer knowledge environment and you would see a better production of knowledge via research. That's basically that's my thesis there. Um, do I think that there are I think that, first of all, you have to look at what you mean by faculty. There are entire fields that were kind of set up during the 60s radical movement to accommodate former radicals. That's how Black study, or, or people that were thought to be unable to perform at, you know, the UT or UK or whatever level at that time for whatever reason, but that's how Black studies, women's studies, the entire grievance sector, which is now- I, I, do,
0: I mean, why, why it became so important to take, like, create faculty positions for the weather underground, I do not understand, right? Like, Why is the natural next step in your life after setting bombs and trying to overthrow society and bring about totalitarian oligarchy, then you become a professor? How did that?
1: Well, because they they read Gramsci, I actually this is uh, this is a piece the, totally non-quantitative, just my babble that I might submit to some kind if I can find a non-radical philosophy journal or journal of thought. One of the things that's really fascinating about American thought life is on the left, the influence of people like Gramsci and uh, is the education guy pronounced Ferrere, Ferre? Freire. Hello, uh, I'm better. Uh, I was just having a discussion with a Brazilian about him
0: but I can't remember we'll, we'll exactly. Let's call him yeah. P.F. So there can't just yeah, be. That Yeah, that guy. The yeah,
1: who's, that, that guy who's, the, who's the most popular, one of the most popular authors in education schools. Yes, much. but if you look at, if you look at a lot of the writing, Gramsci is the classic example of this, we can leave P.F. to the side right now. But one of the ideas in sort of uh, Alinsky, I mean, right here in, in America recent past, one of the main ideas in radical thought is that radicals are unlikely to be popular and powerful in a lot of the traditional schema worlds that have influence in society, they're not going to take over war, the the militaries, although we're seeing that to a surprising degree today, interestingly yes. enough. but you're not going to see a massive radical influence in sport, in agriculture, so on down the line. So as a radical, where can you go have an influence? Uh, Gramsky's answer was discourse, essentially. I mean, at the time, he's probably thinking of radio and pamphleteering and so on, but people following that line of thought, certainly people who've read Alinsky and who understood what The Weather Underground said in the 60s, have often tended to try to go into fields where they can present radical ideas to new impressionable people. So, I mean, you see higher education, you see secondary education, you see journalism, you see broadcast media, you see print media. And this has been remarkably successful. I mean, to the point where the introductions of books will gloat, you know, where did we go after the revolution failed, after they broke us once, we went to the campus to build the next wave. I mean, these are quotes, so, or close to them. So the extent to which this has been successful, and I'll, I'll loop back to the main point about the conflict within the faculty in a sec, but the extent to which this has been successful is pretty remarkable. I mean, obviously, some of the best known data, at least in my field, is Pew 2004, when they asked national news journalists, news media journalists, what are your political affiliations? What are your partisan affiliations? And they found that you might correct this by a point or two, but 7% of national media journalists were conservatives of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, that would include libertarians. I assume that would probably include the center right. That was that was this block over here. The other 93% of people would be leftists, liberals, or moderates, with most of the moderates leaning left. Um, I mean, and that's that. It's 93 to 7. That's, that's the split. Um, you find a sharper split, unbelievably, in academia. So, I mean, uh, there's a paper, The Prevalence of Marxism in Academia, which you can find hosted on sort of the Econ Live resource for papers right now. And in social science, which is really our focus, I think, uh, 18% of professors are communists. Um, another 21% identify as radical activists. And another 24%, something like that. Everyone should look up this paper themselves, but identify as just activists or committed radicals. Um, And it's probably 21% for actual activists, 24% for radical. But those are three different questions on the survey, as I recall. So I mean, you get 18 plus 20 plus 24. About 60% of the people in the academic professoriate in the social sciences are hard to the left, radical on the left. So whatever the, the original light bulb insight that went on in Alinsky's head or Hoffman's or whatever saying, well, we should... This is the path we should pursue. They they have pursued it, and that's why I don't know if you feel this way, but that, even I feel gaslit pretty often. I mean, you'll see people saying things that are, just seem insane. Oh, Sex yeah. is hard to define. Human population variation doesn't exist. Crime doesn't contribute to encounters with the police. Yeah. Guns <laughs> don't prevent crime. And you you think can all these smart people be wrong? Well, but what the, I've encountered recently is, like, we have, like, official, you know, we have, the,
0: the, the University of Texas will pay people to come train our faculty for sort of public, and they're teaching them explicitly, you know, things like don't let facts get in the way of effectiveness. Like, we're telling our faculty oh, wow. that they should lie in order to promote, you know, the interest of marginalized groups. They're pretty explicit in this. So, you know, that's, yeah, I definitely, you know, I don't know, you know. I just assume anyone who's talking is lying as an academic now. So uh, I, I don't consider myself gaslit very often, but you hear, it, it, it's a, it seems like it's a fairly explicit story of like you are supposed to make things up to convince people of these sort of ideas. Um, did you see the Sokol three hoax?
1: Uh, the, I mean, the Sokol three, you're talking about James Lindsay and those guys.
0: No, the, the ones that, the one that came after him where they, uh, they got a, these uh, anonymous faculty got a paper in an education journal showing that um coke money makes everyone uh hire unqualified conservatives and push pushes everything right
1: i've heard about it i won't pretend i'm familiar that's hilarious oh it's worth reading it's
0: very good it we got in a high you know but it's exactly this like well okay these this information is clearly nonsense but it promotes our agenda so we're going to to publish it i i highly rate it. it's a it's a work of art it's one of the best papers
1: i've ever read I, reg- I think check out the regression specification it's it's beautiful <laughs> this is funny I'll, I'll definitely check that out the the thing that's interesting about this is that i think i've heard this paper non ironically praised like i would oh, yeah be- yeah no the it, when it first got out like the first twitter hits were like oh look at this you know we're right the right is
0: taking over and then gradually people were like wait a second <laughs> There's 17 typos in the abstract.
1: Yeah, I think that... It was published, or it got published. I think that... So how to respond to that? First, this is absolutely 100% the paper that I saw widely praised on social when it came out, I'm guessing about a year and a half ago, because that's when people were saying that the, the reality in academia is that conservative funding causes it to lean right. Mm-hmm. And gradually people just stopped citing this paper. By the way, this this is extraordinarily common if you wanna talk about major failures. I mean, uh, the most recent thing I quote unquote trended for on social and something that will be my next sort of at least popular press article, if not beyond that. Did you see the native residential schools thing in Canada? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this one, this was absolutely wild. I mean, I wanna hear your take too, but just a quick intro. I mean, obviously this, this is one of the leading stories at least north of the border for months. The claim was that a mass grave involving 215 bodies of Native kids that had died at one of their residential schools, and the, the underlying assumption was that it had not been reported, that perhaps had been murdered, had been found. It had absolutely been detected, and they'd found 215 bodies outside the Kamloops Native Residential Boarding Center, as I recall the name of the place. And... It turns out that this obscure Canadian review published a piece, a very good piece, by the way, nothing nothing wrong with putting an article there, but published a piece by a guy at the University of Montreal who said, well, let's look at this. What they used was sort of standard ground mapping radar, and they didn't find any bodies because that doesn't dig. What they found were X number of disturbances under the ground, and after looking at this with some knowledge of the field, I think they're tree roots. Not a single body has been discovered. We need to excavate before we can make any claims at all. So the media has totally failed here. But also, it seems really unlikely this could have happened because neither natives or whites in the 1950s were sort of, you know, unlettered barbarians. There were registers of everyone to die at the school. And the school's located on a successful Indian reservation known for its fishermen. You know, it's, there's no chance this happened. But as a result of the original story, which ran throughout the Canadian press and throughout the upper end, even to some extent, academic media around the world, I mean, something like 10 Catholic churches were burned. There were violent clashes between whites and natives. People were hurt and believed killed. So these sort of things, another story that comes to mind is the claim that hate crimes surged 226% in counties that held Trump rallies. That was the front page of the Washington Post. It turned out there was a 226% increase in Trump rally counties. I actually looked at the methods on this one. I just people to, to criticize them. There was a 226% increase in Trump rally counties over non-Trump rally counties. But that's in the sense that two is 200% of one. The increase in one set of counties was 1%. And the other set of counties, it was Two percent. So this is this extraordinary bullshit drops all the time. And you literally have to be a statistician to look at it and say, oh, that's the mistake. Um, it, it, it's pretty remarkable. So yeah, the, the faculty bears some blame here as well. But I mean, I, I think my, my two-sentence defense there would be you're talking about a specific subset of faculty that are encouraging this kind of thing, and I think generally you can tell where they're going to be concentrated. And that itself occurs within this administrative superstructure like there are I mean, there's a DEI office, you know, there's um, pretty much everything. I mean, there's review of the projects that you're doing on every major campus. All of this occurs. I I don't think the faculty left to their own devices. If if you read the fall of the faculty, it's on would have approved 90 percent of this. But there it is. Yeah, But they won't. They, they might not approve it but they're sure is not
0: heck, not going to fight back against it or do the right thing right <laughs> yeah it's the there's a yeah, element of faculty cowardice that i find perhaps even more disturbing okay at least respect the people who are using their positions to destroy civilization for fun and profit but these people who are just like <laughs> lie down for it because they're
1: just too afraid someone will get angry at them i uh, can't respect that at all but that's my take. No, I agree with that. But I, I also think that another element. So the three elements would be one, the administrative superstructure Two, the departments that are entirely radical. But I mean, there's also just three, the light ideological bias. So in any field other than pure STEM, where they're still mostly doing their own thing for now, um, for now. but I mean, in any field, even in psychometrics or something like that, you're probably talking about a 70-30 left-right split. So it's just, it's weird. Most people that are centrist or conservatives and that really oppose academia on these issues would just go work for a good think tank or something like that, or go into business if you're talking about the sciences, do, do research for much more money. So it's, it's a kind of self-selecting process. It's almost impossible to imagine some you know, stylish conservative girl that's written a couple pieces for like the Daily Wire going on after the master's to become an English professor. And I think a question for those of us in academia would be, why is that almost inconceivable? But the, the reality is that it is, and that, that affects the environment. It's, it's, it's actually respect what you're doing. It's a tough environment to stand up in. I mean, and we now stay- have, a, we have our inclusion policy,
0: which basically says you can't hire people like that person who might go work for the Daily Wire. So
1: It's becoming pretty institutionalized. Well, that's that's something that I don't think people understand. I mean, if you ask people if they support, say, full on trans inclusion in every sector or what their plan for complete equity across group lines is, that's just an ideological litmus test. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think I could sign on to either of those any sector. Uh, Equity, I almost totally oppose. I want to see the people that do the best on the tests, assuming the equivalent prep time for the minority kids and so on, get into university. My admissions policy for universities would be extraordinarily simple. About 60% tests, 40% grades with a 5% boost for varsity athletes, maybe. I mean, that's it. And yeah. so once you do that, you don't. And the five percent is a maybe. Once you do that, you don't. You also just roll a ball out in the gym and let everyone who got in compete to be on the team. People, <laughs> there'd be just as much support. But um,
0: the total number of wins in college athletics is fixed. We don't really need to be anyway.
1: Well, yeah the the whole idea that you should this is a situation where you're right the win total is zero sum but there's also really no advantage to not just doing what i suggested like you could take big guys on your campus who came from the farm or the hood but who actually made the scores to get there and have those guys play some football or you could spend 26 million dollars a year whatever it is for you guys recruiting the best athletes in the country and then have them play some football but you're going to have the same stadium, the same scenery, so on down the line. I mean, if you look at some of the games that are like the most watched outside of the state of Texas, I will say, but they're things like Army, Navy and Harvard, Yale, where the athletes are on par with some of the guys I knew in high school that it doesn't matter. So anyway, that that's my thought on college athletics. But, you know, consider the five percent. We can debate that in faculty, senate or whatever. But that's a one minute admissions policy. And that, by the way, would also remove the need for a massive woke department of admissions. You've got 50 guys reading the equivalent of resumes. Why? I worked on a very large sales floor in Chicago for a couple of years, intense bullpen environment. I mean, we would do the hiring. The the bullpen guys would just take the resumes, look through them, and decide whether someone seemed functional or not. If you want to avoid any element of racism, and people sometimes did this even in this bro environment, just cross out everyone's name with a black pen. You have no idea who's who. It's really simple to do these things. They're being intentionally complicated for a reason. It's important to keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, and if anyone is looking to set up a new university,
1: I think you've found your admissions dean. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be very willing to play. See, I would be in that case. I'm, actually, I wouldn't be a useless sinecure. I have, you know, three books I want to get ready to go down the pipe. But I mean, that I would be the guy relaxing in the office, drinking scotch in that role. Like once mm-hmm. a year, they would yeah, send me a bunch of, you know, application packets, CVs, whatever you want to call them. I'd look through them. I'd calculate, i do a good, honest job. I'd calculate SAT score, you know, matrixed against grades, see if people played some ball and that's it. Yep. And we admit, you know, whatever the number is, 3,000 each spring, each fall and life goes on. There's, there's really not much need for any more than that, but we've created a entire process around more than that. It's, it, one thing that's interesting about academia is the question of, is it salvageable? When I was getting out into the working world, because, I mean, I got out of high school in 99, I'm an adult man, um, downsizing was just coming to an end, where the entire corporate America had realized, competing with the Japanese and to a lesser extent, the Euros, India was starting to rise, but corporate America had realized that we had these entire useless layers of middle management, and um, just, I mean, you, you've seen Office Space, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's classic. But I mean, anyone at the job should watch it. But just the classic, of what do you do? Well, I'm the guy who interfaces between sales and engineering. But why? Well, because the goddamn engineers don't have people skills. Like, th- this that actually existed. I mean, you had one middle manager for every three clerical level employees or whatever. And companies started asking, what do these guys do other than sleep with secretaries? Why couldn't we replace all of these guys with one old school computer in the front of the office? And they did. In academia, the question is, will there be the resolve to do the same thing? If you have 600 executive staff people for every 100 professors on a pretty typical campus in a heartland state. Is it feasible that that infrastructure goes away? Um, If it's not, academia has a real problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to see an influx of right-leaning faculty or even just heterodox faculty. I mean, I've talked to Colin Wright about this, for example, but you're not going to see that until you get rid of something like the full-on equity statement in the hard sciences. I mean, that's almost an unbelievably nonsensical contradiction there.
0: Yeah. Well, I I don't want to take up any, this has been absolutely fascinating. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but hopefully we can... Uh... Uh, do this again sometime. Thank you. uh, So thanks very much to uh, Professor Riley. Thank you. Thanks for having me.